So we have with us Sayyid Abbas Razavian. Alhamdulillah, it's a pleasure to have you on our podcast. Thank you for accepting the invitation. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Inshallah, it's been an honor, alhamdulillah, to be graced by you, Brother <laughs> Sheikh Hamid. Alhamdulillah, and uh, really, I, I miss you, and uh, it's very good to, to be able to talk with you, alhamdulillah. Yeah, it's an alhamdulillah. Honor. I miss you too, man. I miss you too, and uh, you're gracing us with your with your presence. Bro. Uh, thank you. <laughs> so thank you. I know you for I think it's got to be twenty years now, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Since we were this small. <laughs> <laughs> so, just for whoever's listening, I met uh, Sayed Abbas when I got out of prison, and he was in university in USC. So I moved into a house that there was, I think, at least 10 of us were living in that, that little apartment. Maybe not 10, I don't know, <laughs> six of us or however many were living in that apartment. And we would hold religious programs there. And that was pretty much where I really connected to Islam and got inspired to go to Hausa. I, I had the inclination beforehand, but after meeting you brothers there and living that lifestyle that we lived, you know, everyone just pretty much concentrating on God and, and doing their thing. It was, it was a great time for me. And from there, I went to Hausa, and you came a few years after that. But you, were, you and the brothers were an inspirational group for me, man. Alhamdulillah. Oh, thank you. Actually, you inspired me. So you, you came to the Hausa first, and then uh, I was inspired to, to follow your footsteps. So then uh, I came too. So Alhamdulillah, a lot of us from that group came. Right, I know you came. Yes. Your brother, your brother was there for a little bit. Um, yes, and a number of other brothers. I think uh, didn't Hushyar come for a few for a little bit of time as well? Um, Sohrab came. Um, I don't know. So many people came from that. Yeah, from that group. Uh, Kamran came. Yeah. What is it? This group was wasn't a huge group. Like let's say there was at most we'd hold dua kumail programs. At most we'd get thirty people, forty people. Wouldn't ever be more than that, right? So it's in a small yeah. little apartment, and then percentage wise, we have to probably be one of the biggest percentage of a congregation to go to Qom from from yes. the west. You know, it's crazy. Yeah. What do you think started yes, that? Yes. Like how did how did that happen? Uh, I don't know. I'm sure there's uh, a lot of factors. Um, one is the the level of uh, sincerity, the level of piety is very high. So it usually takes uh, someone to be more advanced, and not myself, but someone like you, uh, to be more advanced spiritually to make that step, you know, that sacrifice, you know, leaving, you know, where they're comfortable and going somewhere else. And not knowing what's going to happen, you know, to their life, you know, it's just Bismillah, and you just take that step. So it takes a high level of uh, piety, the spirituality, I think, and that's one of the things I think that is uh, we were blessed with is that we kept um, not only individually were we good, collectively we were good. Yeah, I think collectively yeah, is, is the key there, because we were like it wasn't like we were haram police or anything. We were on top of each other and spying on each other. But I think we kind of, every one of us had the same goal. 
and we just kind of motivated each other to move closer towards God. And we had good leadership as well. So like Brother Cowther, for instance, who was a good yes. role model for us and just a few years older than us. He wasn't, you know, he didn't, he wasn't a scholar from Qom, but, you know, he had that, he had a lot of knowledge, a lot more knowledge than we had, or he still does, obviously. And, and he's very religious yes. and we looked up to him. And, you know, I think at least for me personally, he was one of the main reasons that made me go to Qom as well, is that just trying to see him and being inspired and motivated by by his approach to Islam as well. Yes, yes, he's a, he is a brother that has uh, good knowledge and also very high uh, in actions, and that's what's very important, mm. especially when you're young uh, and, and become close. You know, a lot of times you become close to someone, you realize who they are. You know, someone like uh, Hajj Kalter, the more you become closer, the more uh, you, you like him or love him more. So. A lot of times a person, uh, you know, they're inside, what they are inside hides. Mm. Um, and uh, when you have a, a close relationship with them, you, you realize, oh, actually this person isn't how I thought he was. But someone like Coach Kalther or the brothers that we had, the more you got to know them, the more you, you became inspired. And that's very important. So knowledge and action uh, being equal, you know, mm. in one being. 100%, 100%. All right, so I know I went to Hausa in, I think it was year 2000, 2001, long time ago. And I yeah. went to Lebanon. After Lebanon, I went to Iran for a while. And you came a couple years after. When did, when did you go to the Hausa? Uh, 2001. 2001. So this is our 20-year wow. anniversary. My shot, 20, 20 year anniversary of Hausa. <laughs> so you're in Hausa for, well, it's, two, it's not 2021 yet, but... Close to 20 yeah. years, mashallah. That's a long time. Yeah, well, I was saying for you. For, for you, it's 2000, well, I, I 2020. Been, I haven't been in Hausa. <laughs> I've left the Hausa. You're still there. <laughs> well, so, you're still part. You're still part of it. You know, yeah, uh, the Hausa sure. is something that you keep continuing. It's, it's not like, you know, it's, of course, Sheikh Ahmed knows. I'm just saying for the viewers. When I graduated USC, you know, you just leave your books and you really don't open it, you know, because you just need it to graduate. But about the Hosa, you know, you continue that knowledge and you continue that education. And that's just the first step. So you're mm -hmm. continuing your knowledge until when? Until when does it end? Until we die. You know, that's when <laughs> seeking knowledge ends for us. I seek knowledge yeah. from the cradle to the grave, huh? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. But yeah, I mean, definitely... <laughs> You know, I always have to prepare for lectures and classes that I'm giving and I'm doing my own studies as well. And we have we have actually really good discussions in Sydney recently. So on Tuesday and Thursday nights at different places, we hold pretty, you know, high level religious discussions with some of this, some of the brothers and some of the ulama get together and and, and talk about sure. issues as well. So it's good recently, but uh, nowhere near. When I was in Hausa, I mean, when I was in Hausa, all you're doing is studying. At least that's what you're supposed yes. to be doing, right? So you definitely, you're definitely putting more time into your studies than you are afterwards. And I felt that after I left, although I do, you know, I do try to study and I do try to put a portion of my day into researching and keeping up with Islamic sciences, it's definitely, you know, it's hard to improve from where you are when you left. Like, I, I definitely don't see myself more knowledgeable 
than I was when I left Qom. And I'm just trying to maintain what I had pretty much when it comes to Islam. But maybe I'm doing something wrong with that. I don't know. I just don't feel the... It's hard to keep up with everything, you know? Yeah, I, I agree that uh, in, in, in one aspect that, especially when it comes to the traditional sciences, it's very hard to study them when you leave the house. Mm -hmm. Even some of our ulama have said this, like in the mm -hmm. summertime when they'd go to their hometown, some of like diff difficult philosophical concepts would be much easier, easier understood in home than in their own town. Actually, we have stories from Mullah Sadra, the, the top philosopher that we have, that he lived in Kahak, which is, you know, a few kilometers. We, Australia does kilometers, so that's good. You don't have to <laughs> translate to, to miles. <laughs> yeah. A few kilometers away from home. But he would come to the shrine of Lady Fatima Masuma mm. to um, answer some of the questions that he couldn't solve. And he would come to the shrine. Mm. And then these these questions that he couldn't solve would be would be answered. So yes, when it comes to you know the the scientific knowledges we have, you know, fair usul philosophy, that's true. But I feel that when you do tabligh and when you leave Rome, you become more jamit. You become uh, you know your knowledge becomes more encompassing, and uh, you can you know you'll be forced to study more about different fields that. Um, relates to people's lives. So I feel that I'm sure that your knowledge is now, you know, much more expanding, I think, uh, other yeah. fields. I agree with that. Say, I agree with know. that 100%. So especially, you know, in Hausa, we'll be discussing the intricate details of some thick ruling that we'd never talk about anywhere here. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like it would just be a waste of time because no one would know what, what no one would even be able to understand the conversation. Right. But yeah. you're yeah. definitely you're definitely reading more ahadith to use in speeches, and you're trying to figure out how we could apply Islam to the lifestyle that we have here, and how we could adapt our lifestyles to make them more Islamic. And definitely, in in that instance, you're stronger, hundred percent. But in as you said, in those um, deep sciences that we have of fiqh and usul and tafsir and philosophy and stuff like that, you know, it's it's hard when you step away to improve right i think the goal is to just maintain right improving yeah, is, is yes. difficult yeah so you've been yes. there now close to 20 years so what are you doing where what are you studying now uh, my emphasis is more on jurisprudence uh jurisprudence and islamic legal theory fair and uh and one of the reasons i chose to Emphasize, you know, you don't have the chance to be a master or to try to master all fields. It's very difficult. You know, someone like uh, Imam Khomeini was very an exception that both he was a mushtahid at very high level, top level, you know, a'lam mushtahid, and also very high philosopher and arif and politician, you know. But usually a person has a chance to study in one field, you know, and try to get good at that. And one of the reasons I chose fiqh and usul is because even though how you mentioned uh, you do analyze, you know, very uh, detailed rulings, but you're learning uh, how to deal with hadith mainly because most of our law comes from hadith. So, and we call this ulum al you know, the, um, uh, I guess you call it the sciences that are related, related to text, studying text. So a faqih is a person that can understand the hadith. 
a faqih is a person who understands the, the context that Imam Sadiq lived in and they can derive the law from, from that. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to study Fiqh also so I can understand the Qur'an, the Hadith, the scripture. Uh, and the ulama, usually the, the most knowledgeable, they say, a lot of times is the person that has the best power, uh, capability to understand the Hadith. Um, so, you know, that's one of the reasons and I've been continuing this and I mean, uh, the level of Kharij for, yeah. I think, Seven, eight years I've been in, in Kharij, so yeah, I've been continuing this, this. That's what I that's what I concentrated on as well, Fikun Rasul, when I was there. And with that same Inshallah. understanding that the, the reason I wanted to concentrate on those sciences was to learn how to incorporate the different, you know, uh, Islamic texts and principles in order to derive an Islamic um, ruling. And doesn't necessarily have to be a fiqh ruling, but you could apply those principles to history, to tafsir, to whatever you want to apply them to. And definitely, you know, I, th I think that's right now the strength of the Hausa, you know, aside from spirituality and aside from from Irfan, I guess, and philosophy would be fiqh and usul, right? Um, that being said, who are, you, who are your teachers? You said seven, eight years now in Kharij. Who are you studying under now? Yes. So um, I remember uh, reading a, an interview from Ayatollah Sayyid Mahmoud al-Shahroudi who passed away two years ago. And he was saying that Ishtahad, about 60-70% is teacher, 20-30% or 30-40% is students. Hmm. So a lot of times we think it's the student just trying hard. But he was saying it's more you have to find a teacher that's qualified, a teacher that is a mushtahid himself. And then uh, with, you know, with, of course, Ishtahad, you know, comes from strife, from, from struggling. And uh, with that struggle, you, someone would become mushtahid. So I chose one, one teacher and I'm with him. His name is Ayatollah Shahidipur. And he's a student of Ayatollah Tabrizi was um, a very knowledgeable scholar we had in Rome that passed away about, I think, 10 years. I think you're in Rome when he passed away? Yeah, yeah was a Jawa. Was. that's right. Yeah, and there's a big funeral for him and his students. And so he was one of the top instructors, instructors of Rome, mm. uh, especially in Fit. And his, so his students now are uh, some of the good uh, uh, teachers right now that are teaching Kharij. And I took Shahidi Poor as one of them. And uh, so I do a usul and a fit with him. Uh, mm -hmm. Of course, classes are canceled right now because of the coronavirus, but uh, our teacher is still teaching online oh, wow. and, and recording these online. Yes, yes. So what platform so, um, is he using uh, to, to teach with? So he, it's not live. He records it. Mm. And then it goes on his website and you download the audio. Mm. And the students will take... We'll write taqrir, we call it taqrir, means to write down or transcribe the class. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's much different than how taqrir was done before. Uh, right now, if you go to, I'm sure you saw in Dar Sakharj, you see people typing what the teacher is saying. Mm -hmm. Back uh, uh, in, in Najaf, uh, as, as from my limited understanding, it was some, seen as something uh, uh, not very good to write the notes while you're in class. Huh. It was actually better to write when he went home. Mm. 
and that showed how great you understood that that concept. So this is, you know, for my limited understanding that uh, the future Mushtahids, they would understand, just sit and basically absorb everything and they could learn everything and write it when they went home exactly. Mm. So that was you know, someone that was a mullah, someone that was very knowledgeable. They would write the taqlirat when they, they would go home. Mm-hmm. So uh, now most times we're just writing it in, in class. Um, you know, uh, but you know, it's interesting. I asked our teacher, when would you, you know, do mubahis? We have st- studying, you know, uh, you, it's very recommended to find a studying partner and you discuss what the teacher uh, explains. So when uh, some of the students asked our teacher, Arthur Shahidi, when would you do mubahisa of these uh, discussions? He said, before even the class. Hmm. He said, uh, before the class was even taught, we already did the mubahith of that discussion already. Yep. And he would say, I would write, I would write, I would do taqir, even before, ta- before being taught, I would write my own notes and have my own ideas. And then I would have my own mubahitha, all of that done, and then I would attend that lesson. And I feel that's so that the shows... best way to do it. The peace mutala, as they say, right? I, th- yes, I feel that yes, yes. 100% that's the best way because then you go into the class prepared with, with knowledge about the subject. And if the teacher says something that you didn't hear before or, or he has a different view than you came up with, right? It sticks out more for you. Because exactly. something you haven't heard, you're like, oh, wow, I, ju- I just read, you know, 20 pages on this. I didn't see that. Where is that from? And that sticks out to you. Or if he mentions the opinion that you came up with and then throws, throw, you know, destroys it, then you're like, all right, I, I, you know, maybe I wasn't, exactly. I didn't understand it the way I thought. But I just feel like that, that process definitely helps. And when I, was, when I did that, I understood much more. Then when I just went to the class, listened, and then talked about it with some other students afterwards, like that would help the, you know, doing the mobahate after the class as well helps, but it doesn't have the same effect, I don't think. So I like that advice. Yes. Yeah. Yes. He was saying that um, when you're, when your mind, the way that your mind works is when you hear something, say for the first time or, you know, after a while, it just takes us such a long time for you just to learn it, mm. you know, see what the teachers understand was saying. That's one step. But the other steps are thinking about that. You know, they even say in your, in your sleep, you're actually processing and thinking too. So the earlier you're, um, you know, you approach that topic. Uh, this isn't, isn't someone like me. I don't, you know, unfortunately, uh, and this is something I should do more. I'm, I'm just saying this is the approach that uh, the, the main, the, the very serious uh, ulama and scholars had, that they would have mubaytha even before, or they do the taqrir, as I mentioned, uh, after, because they basically absorbed everything, they understood everything, they could just write it, and it's like writing a book. Hmm. So yeah, those taqrirats are, 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 are r- r- written, and then online we go and uh, we will do mubaytha with our, with our uh, study partner. So we have Alhamdulillah classes, and this is how it's been from the month of Rajab, about three or four months. Uh, of course, in Rome, we have a long summer uh, break. I think Najaf doesn't have such a long break, but Rome has, a, has about two or three months break. And uh, we'll see next year what happens in fall, if there's going to be you know, physical classes or it's going to be online again. So, mm-hmm. but Alhamdulillah, you know, things are still, there are classes being taught and, and, and 
people are learning, students are learning. So I'm doing Sure. Cool. All right. So with Tablik, right? So I know how, how often do you travel outside of Iran and do Tablik or is that something that you rarely take part in? Um, this is something I started very late and I kind of regret it because uh, I remember a, a, a teacher saying this once. He says speaking is like driving a car. So the more that you, uh, earlier you learn how to drive, the better you will be at it. So if it, you know, if you approach speaking very late, it's very hard to get good at it. So yeah, I, I started my first, uh, I was invited in the, you know, the second year in the Hausa. And uh, I remember going to my teacher, Sheikh Ahmad Mushtaidi, all excited, you know, to go to Tabligh, you know, it's very exciting. I was I was speaking though a little bit before when I would come, but then you know to be a, a official event or something to come, be invited officially, uh, for like Muharram or something, and then I was so excited and I went and visited personally my teacher Sheikh Ahmad Mushtaidi just privately, and uh, he would say say this and he would begin to cry He's like say this about Ali Askar and then he would begin to cry, say this say about Ali Akbar and then he would begin to cry. And then you said, suddenly you said, did you do Astakhara before you went? And I said, no, I didn't do, let's do an Astakhara. I was like, okay. And then he did Astakhara, he came out bad. Oh. So <laughs> it got canceled. <laughs> <laughs> so that definitely got canceled and delayed until, uh, so that was the second year of my Hosa, until probably my 11th year in the Hosa. Uh, I think 11, maybe 13th year in the Hosa. 11th or 13th year in the Hosa, then uh, I started it again. And it is difficult because, and I encourage the students that, uh, you know, there's a problem with tablet. One is that, you know, you should be at a level that if fame or uh, different factors in the world doesn't influence you. And that usually happens later on when you, in Farsi, we call it pochte, you know, you get cooked a little bit, you know. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> when you advance your studies. But the other problem is if you don't begin early, you aren't in touch with the communities as much. You lose language, your speaking abilities, especially living in Iran. So these are problems, you know. So I did start much later, I mean, about six years ago. Tablir. So presently, if I get invited, uh, I will travel to Qom like last year. I was invited for the month of Ramadan, Muharram, and Ayama Fatimiyah, Salamu Alaikum. So, uh, yeah, I'll go for for the main. These for, they're usually you go tablet for these three or four main events. Yeah. Um, unless I'm 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 in the states visiting my father and uh, you know, but usually for these three or four main events, uh, I'll go. But right now, a lot of things are being canceled. I don't know how it is in Australia, but. Uh, I think the month of Ramadan, were the programs canceled there? Or? Yeah, so all the programs were all canceled here in the month of Ramadan, but the masjids are just opening. So I held my first uh, speech on Friday, so last couple uh, nights ago. Yeah, so it's good. So they started back up. I think in Australia, we've only had about 100 people who have died from the virus. I mean, may Allah give patience to those families, but it's the numbers are much lower than they are in other countries. So the okay. restrictions are easing and I don't know the month of Muharram what's going to happen, but I know month of Ramadan, yeah, it was shut down. 
Um, where do you go for Tablik? Do you go mainly to the States or have you been around other countries as well? Um, just mainly in the United States. Yeah. Uh, that's how, how it's been. So different states. Um, California. I'm from California. So California, mainly California. And <laughs> so, I've been to other we'll states get you out here in Australia. You could play with the kangaroos or something. It'd be fun. <laughs> yeah, that would, that would be nice. It would be an honor, and um, the honor would be. Ours. I guess if nobody We'd listens, be graced again. If nobody listens. Yes, yeah, yeah. Nobody listens to me speak. At least you know, I can find a, a few kangaroos or something to listen to me <laughs> speaking. <laughs> sure. I did. I did yeah. actually see a series you gave in the month of Ramadan this year. Um, it looked like you were in front of the Master Jam Quran for a group called Hayat Online. Don't know who they are, yeah. um, but actually I looked at their page and I saw Sheikh Zaid Al Salami was there, and Sheikh Zaid is from Australia, so yeah, I'm sure. there. And uh, Sheikh Navid, I, I recognized as well. Sheikh Mehdi was there, and you had a f there was a few scholars who gave uh, lectures on, on their their page. Who are they? Hayat Online. Yes, yes, yes. So here online is a group of uh, brothers from the East Coast uh, of America. Oh. And uh, I think um, brother Dardashtian, Sheikh Dardashtian that's been to Australia and he's a reciter too. He, uh, I think, started it and uh, he's helping, it, helping out with it. And he's the one that uh, called everybody mm. because he figured that, you know, everyone's usually invited for the month of Ramadan. And he, he found out that we're all in home. So he said, let's do something. And uh, he actually recorded, he recommended recording it and then, you know, uploading it to YouTube because of the connection and the reliability of the internet. So, yeah. and then he called a few people and alhamdulillah, he got Masjid Jam Karam and it was closed in, in home back then. Mm. So it was a privilege to be there. Uh, and it is very sad too at the same time because people are praying outside the masjid because they don't like it to be closed. Yeah. But you're privileged to be inside there. Mm. I mean, you were in the masjid, were you? You were outside. Out, out in that, that area was all, is all uh, blocked. You yeah. cannot get in. Yeah, I the noticed there was no one walking so, in the courtyards. Yeah. There's a video yeah, behind yeah. you. So yeah. But mashallah. Yeah. So we were thinking about. Thank you. So we're thinking about recording inside the masjid or outside. They they said at the end it's better to do it outside because mm -hmm. you see the masjid and um, you know. But anyway, so yeah, it was a good experience. Okay. Also from some of the other videos, he had uh, the shrine of Ali ibn Musa Rida in Mashhad. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Sheikh Navid spoke there and uh, they, they got an opportunity to actually record inside the, the shrine there too. So it was nice. Yeah, it's it good. was nice and uh, yeah. Jam Karam was beautiful. Good for me. <laughs> Jam Karam was beautiful yes, looking yeah. at it. So uh, just a quick question before we talk about what you were talking about in those lectures. What what is your opinion about the significance of Jam Karam? So Jam Karam, as you know, is a masjid that's built been built around say 900, 1,000 years old. So it's a very old masjid. And it, as you know, there's more during the, the time of uh, the minor, it was after, I believe it was in the major occultation, but 
During the beginning of the major occultation, um, you'll see stories, more stories about Tasharrufat or meetings of, of Imam Mahdi. And uh, the person, which is Jam Karani, had this meeting with Imam Mahdi and was instructed, you know, to, to, to build this masjid. And it's been, um, you know, some of these stories that we have, Tasharrufat, um, some of them uh, have been collected some of the meetings that we had. I think Najm I think Shaykh Muhaddith Anuri collects it, around 100 stories of people meeting Imam Mahdi. And of course, you know, some are more reliable, some less reliable. Those that the ulama believe and trust, those are the important ones. Because not all of our knowledge is just book knowledge or written. A lot of it is chest by chest. You know, we call this in Farsina, Basina, you know. So, um, some of these stories that he has, uh, Muhaddith Anuri has, uh, some of the ulama have even given a fatwa based on this story, this tasha, because they believed it was, it was true. Okay. So, uh, so, so it depends on which story it is and which tasharruf it is meeting with Imam Mahdi. So this is the, you know, the history and you see big ulama, you know, Talking about, I wish I could do all my prayers over again in Masjid Jamkara. I think it's Ajul Buru Jirdi or some big marriage wishing they could do all their prayers over. And besides all of this, just a place that you hear the name of Imam Mahdi, the doors, the walls, the the the, the, the marble on the ground, all of this it, it absorbs that nur and light. Mm. They say once Al Tabo Tabai. he was at Hosseinia, a place that was remembering uh Imam Hussein salam with the Ahlul Bayt, and he went up, and uh, because they redecorated it, he went up a few steps and went and ne- sat next to the, all that chalk and tiles that were destroyed. And uh, they asked, "How come you don't come to the new place?" He says, "These this chalk or this these tiles, they have heard the name of Yah Hussein. I want to be next to them." So when we talk about metaphysical or spiritual things, we believe that. You know, the Ahlul Bayt, not only does it change, you know, our hearts, but even these, you know, uh, physical things we see around us, the wood or the, the towers, they get absorbed. So, Masjid Jamkar, you imagine millions of people coming, uh, especially when it comes to the 15th of Sha'ban, asking for the Savior of Islam, for the Savior of the world to come. So, those, the, that's going to be a very holy place. And that's why whenever someone goes to Masjid Jamkar, they feel that. They feel something, you know, different. They see this is a very a place where it's it's a concentration of the remembrance of Imam Mahdi. Alhamdulillah, you know, I was blessed to be able to go there numerous times when I was in Qom. But I wish since once you depart from Qom, you really miss certain certain parts, and that's definitely one of them. That and obviously the Haram Estate of Masuma. But definitely, if I was there, I would definitely want to go and you know pray there again and spend time there and now that I'm away from it I miss the really feel like I miss that opportunity you don't know what you have until you you leave it you know yeah I, I wish myself too I wish I would visit it more and uh, you know uh, go there more you know alhamdulillah sure. but you can now <laughs> um, all right so right now it's yeah so you talked, you focused on the, the lectures that I saw. You were focusing on um, lifestyle, so an Islamic lifestyle. 
right? And you said that there's yes. three parts to this lifestyle, Tawheed, Walaya, and Ubudiyah, right? Now, yes. one statement you made in the first lecture that you had is that the Islamic lifestyle is the embodiment of Tawheed. And then you repeated that a few times throughout some of your other lectures as well. So what do you mean by that the Islamic lifestyle is the embodiment of Tawheed? And what does that look like in practical life? Sure. Well, thank you uh, for listening. It seems like you listened in and, and uh, you, you know, you're a teacher yourself, you're a sheikh yourself. And, uh, you know, you, you do not need to listen to my lectures. You know, You've been knowledge, in the house but... two times as me, bro. <laughs> I'm nothing compared to you. But, uh, you're, uh, it was your, your humbleness uh, to, to, to look because there are much, many better resources than me, uh, than mine. But anyways, um, about Islamic lifestyle, uh, if you want to just say, you know, what it is, how a Muslim should behave, how Muslims should live, uh, should live, it should be God-centered. And that's what maybe we mean by Tawheed being uh, an embodiment of um, an Islamic lifestyle, God-centered, meaning that God in, is in all of our intentions. Uh, I, was, I have a few courses I teach online, and we were talking about yesterday about intention. And this hadith actually that specify even that intention or ikhlas, sincerity, is in, even in what we love and what we hate. You know, it's in everything. Um, so a Muslim's life should be completely different than a non-Muslim's life. Because once you connect to God, truly, the problem that we have is a lot of times someone like me, it's just, you know, apparently religion is part of me, the way I look, the way I talk maybe, but it might not be ingrained inside from the heart that it shakes somebody and a person, everything he acts, or in the narration say if he talks or if he doesn't talk if he uh, acts or doesn't act it's because of that niyyah, that intention for God so everything he does it's an embodiment of uh, tawheed of, of submitting to the oneness of God you know and in all in, in all uh, you know environments and all realms not only uh, when it comes to the masjid when it comes to our families, when it comes to work, when it comes to school, when it comes to dealing with my neighbor, when it comes to dealing with everything, he's a you know a, a, a display of tawheed. Mm. You know that's the, how the imams were. That's how the prophet was. Shahid Muhammad Baqir Sadr says it so beautifully that Imam Hussein is its Islam itself. Mm. That Imam Hussein is Islam itself. He is a display. Everything that maybe. Uh, the other prophets or imams, they had the potential to show, but Imam Hussein showed it, you know, on the day of Ashura, with the sacrifices, with the, uh, the courage that he had, you know, to, to fight. So therefore, he is Islam itself. So that when a person practices and believes and loves Islam, loves Tawheed, he becomes an embodiment of it. And that's how, at the maximum stages, the prophets and the imams, and then, you know, the, the, the believers that follow them and the followers of the Ahlul And then you, you also touched on a point which you didn't get into it too much, but I wanted to touch upon it a little bit, where this embodiment of Tawheed, right, stems from that witnessing of God, right? And you mentioned in the lecture, obviously, we don't mean seeing him with our eyes, right? So some, some of the sects of Islam 
think that you might be able to see a lot in dreams or see a lot in the hereafter, for instance. But obviously we don't. I'll give you a, a story about this, actually. The first time I went to um, Tablik was um, way earlier than you. So you, you didn't go into like the, you said the 13th year or something. I went in the sixth year, yeah? So in the sixth year, I went to Scotland. And they invited me in the month of Muharram. And I remember I'm giving lectures and it's my first time. I'm nervous. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm trying my best, but it's hard, right? And I see in the crowd is this person. He looks like he's Wahhabi. Like he's got this big beard, shaved mustache. Just the clothes that he was wearing, he, like he looked 100% Wahhabi. And I was like, wow, mashallah, we got you know, Sunni brothers coming, and this is amazing. Like, I was happy with it. And after a couple nights, he came up to me, and he was a, a Sunni brother. And he invited me to his house uh, for breakfast. So breakfast there was at, like, the Fajr, I remember Fajr was, like, something like 8 a.m. or something. It was crazy. Like, you would, you would pray Fajr at work. Like, it was... It was just weird. So I remember we had like breakfast at like 9.30, 10 o'clock or something when, when, when it became light. And uh, he took me to his house and he went, he said, all right, you sit here in this room. I'm going to go get the food. And he left me in the room with a book on the table for like 20 minutes. So he wants me to pick this book up and read it, right? And it was basically, you know, why the Shia are wrong. The book was something like that. So he was trying to convert me, right? And with that, I, I skimmed through the book and just happened to come across some this discussion about, you know, the Shia believe that you can't see Allah and how could you not see Allah when it says you could see Allah in the Quran and in Hadith and blah, blah, blah. And then they went into this discussion and I was reading it and the ridiculous the most ridiculous thing it said because it was saying how can we justify that the arsh is so big but then Allah is akbar Allah is bigger than everything so how could Allah sit on the arsh doesn't make sense because he'd be so big he'd destroy the arsh and it's like this whole discussion about this right and then he said like like he said Allah has to be like uh like I don't know how to explain it without it sounding like terrible, but Allah has to be so like fat that his body like oozes out from around the arsh when he sits on it. Right? And this is how they're describing because that they're trying to figure out how it is that Allah could have a body, but then all these other aspects as well. And obviously we reject that because that would, you know, bound Allah in time and place and it would make him have parts and it would take away from his perfection and all you know all of the obvious reasons of why we we believe he does not have a body but that being said what is witnessing Allah with his heart so there's the tradition from Imam Ali where he says how can I worship a Lord that I cannot see for instance and he goes on to to say that you know, he sees Allah with his heart or with faith or something like that. Uh, what wh What is that? Like, how could we reach, you know, a station where we're connected with God through through Tawheed? So we're complete Muwahideen, 
and we're connected to God and we actually, you know, embody this this reality of Allah in our hearts that we could witness this somehow. Yeah. I'm I'm sure you know the the answer, Sheikh. So, but just um, you know, just for the audience listening, um, as you know, um, there are different ways to reach knowledge, and uh, one is by the senses. And I, Joe, the Almaly divides this, and says that you know, one is knowledge knowledge by sense perception and seeing, hearing, tasting the five senses which is the lowest form of knowledge. This is a knowledge that's shared with the animals. And, you know, a sheep sees, an eye see, a kangaroo sees, a koala sees, you know, just uh, giving examples so, you know, the, uh, the audience can, can relate to. <laughs> the Australian context, yeah? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're beautiful animals, really, and uh, everyone likes them. And besides that, then you have a higher, and that is the philosophical mind. And that is the mind that comes to knowledge without seeing and um, through uh, fundamentals or principles or mathematics or physics and comes to certainty of, you know, we have very complicated equations, but at the end we know this equals that at the end, you know, or a philosopher, for example, knows that uh, God has to exist or we know God has to exist. And that is coming to uh, knowledge or ilm through the aql, through the mind, through uh, the philosophical mind, the intellectual mind. And that is not seeing. So this is ashraf. This is holier than that. Because this is something that uh, animals are very limited. If Even if they have it, it's very limited. But we have the ability to believe and have conviction and, and have certainty with things through our mind, our, our aql. And higher than this, Ayatollah Jawadi Almani says about Knowledge that we gain through the heart or through uh, knowledge by presence. And that is knowledge how, um, and this is going to be a little bit weird for because this is uh, especially, you know, in, um, in, in the West where there has been a detachment of spirituality. And even if we talk about the mind or we talk about the senses and of course, even on you know empiricism and over reliance on the scientific method and all that. Now that it comes to knowing things through the spirit, first they even doubt if there's a spirit, right? Or, or you know, but now as Muslims, we believe we have, of course, a spirit of rule, and that uh, there's different terms for it. We can say the qalb, the heart, and this heart can see. And the narrations talk about this: got hearts that have ears or hearts that have eyes. They can see and hear things. And this is knowledge by presence. And this is shuhud or witnessing. And uh, it happens to our own lives about ourselves, the fact that we know we're one, even though we're billions or millions of cells and they're changing, replenishing, but we know we're one. Or the fact that, you know, we know we exist, you know, or I know I'm hungry, or I know I'm scared. This is knowledge without a medium. This is called knowledge through uh, al-Huduri or knowledge by presence. In the same way, we can witness God. But the thing that has to happen is the barriers need to be removed. And each and every one of us, when we're born, we have a fitrat. And this uh, witnessing God is like a candle. It's very you know, dim maybe. But after listening to the commands of God, uh, it begins to become stronger and stronger. And at the end, it will become you know, like the sun. Or become even, you know, clearer than the sun because 
even if I see the sun with my eyes, I can still make a mistake. Maybe my eyes have a problem. But this knowledge is without any medium. It's, it's witnessing. And we witness this more in holy times. Say in the nights of Ramadan, or in, the whole, in Ziyarat, in Hajj. You, you feel absolute calmness when, when, you, when you're close to God. You feel absolute serenity or, or peace or happiness. And you don't need a, um, you know, a philosophical proof for God's existence anymore. And we see this in the du'as like in Imam Hussein, Bika araftuk. Through you yourself, I've come to know you. I have a ma'rifat of you. I have understanding of you without any media. Hmm. So this is what we're talking about in the final stages and the goals. Is of course, we should back it up with the intellect. The problem with using just spirituality to discover things or kashf is that it should be in line with the intellect. We shouldn't do crazy things. Some people like some of the Sufis or some of the other groups, they might do ridiculous uh, practices or other religions sometimes, you know, just to punish their body, you know, to get to, to the physical, you know, or do um, torture themselves sometimes, you know, to do difficult things we see sometimes in, in, in Hinduism to reach this type of metaphysical world. But ours is in line with the, with the intellect, but it's another tool we use side by side. And this is deep and this is uh, ashraf, this is holy. And that, that's why we say we don't need to see God for God to exist. We don't need to see God in the hereafter. We have this tool and this is holier. This is indeed more detailed than our eyes. This is a better type of knowledge, you know, than our, than seeing. And that is witnessing God with our soul, mm. you know? So that's in, in general. I don't want, I hope I didn't make it too long. But no, no, beautiful. Thank you. No, you, you are <laughs> I'm saying if you invite me to Australia and nobody listens, I'm going to be explaining this to the, the, the wildlife well, in, in Australia. No, I'd sit there and I'd listen. I'll bring my kids. No, stop. Be, no, stop. Us, you're our teacher. You're our sheikh. And stuff. All right. So another, <laughs> another, another aspect of this Tawhidi um, perspective of life that you mentioned in your lecture was that recognizing that everything happens, obviously it happens with the permission and authority of Allah, right? So nothing happens outside of the permission of God. And this is an obvious concept that we have that, you know, through Tawheed al-Afali and through the, the Tawheed of actions, we know that Allah has a role in any action that takes place in this world. Nothing could happen independent of Him, right? Now, question though right and this is a question that i've been asked many times so when i'm teaching this this subject in theology classes all, this question always comes up what about sin and then what it, does god how does how how do we reconcile the fact that allah has to permit an action for it to occur and then people commit sins and not just normal sins horrendous sins people do things that yeah are completely immoral, completely disgusting, and Allah has to stamp his approval of this action to take place. Why does he do so? And we can give examples throughout you know, the time of the Imams where Imam Hussein al-Islam being, being martyred, for instance, right? Allah had to allow Shimmer to do what he did, right? Or we could bring it to modern day, pedophilia, Allah has to allow such a terrible action to take place, which 
in many cases destroys the victim, at least psychologically. Yeah. Right? So how do we reconcile the two, these two concepts here? Yeah, it's a very good question. I'm sure you answered it and you, you know the answer yourself. But um, we've been taught, and this is why we need the Ahlul Bayt And um, the Quran is talks about general themes, but we have verses that talk about fatalism. We have verses that talk about having free will. And there has been confusion in the Ummah. And the Ahlul Bayt they gave the answer you know, to this. That it's an, an amr bain and amrain, or it's an affair between these two. There's both fatalism, that in everything you know happens by by God's will, everything that at the same time, and also about free will, that we have free will. So you the Ahlubay teach us how to deal with these verses. Same way as you mentioned about seeing God and uh the Ahlul they explain to us how when you look at these verses in the Quran about God having a shin or God having a hand or arm an arm or a chair or kursi and what, what are these? So the Ahlul Bayt they are the Mubayyan of the Quran, they explain the Quran to us and you see when people have left the Ahlul Bayt they have been left in utter, utter confusion. So a lot of the Ummah or the majority of them they believed in, in fatalism, or they believe in Jab and they believe that if you, uh, the problem with which, which they say is if you take away these actions from God you're limiting God. You know, so uh, how how can this happen? Uh, and the other from the on the other side is if you um, say everything that that uh, belongs to God and every action is is related to Him, then what about all the injustices that happen? Therefore, you're believing in an unjust God. And actually, this is one of the reasons when I've been reading that a lot of people become atheists. Is because of this. I actually know Not a person personally. When when in prison, one of the one of the brothers who converted to Islam in prison, he actually maybe I don't know how many years later, but let's say six, seven years later, left Islam for exactly that reason. So I know someone personally who left Islam okay. because they couldn't rec reconcile this. Exactly, exactly. So it's not like there's a problem with proving God's existence or creator. The problem is how do I deal with injustices in the world? And for us, we have to, the problem is we see this world as our final abode. We see this world as, you know, when we die, then everything's going to be over and everything that is important is in this world. But when you put this in line with the hereafter, uh, hereafter that is going to be an, in terms of quality and quantity, uh, you cannot compare. As in terms of quantity, our life in this world is like a blink of an eye, maybe you know shorter. Uh, it's shorter than a blink of an eye compared to the hereafter. In terms of quality, that the punishment or the reward there will be incomparable. So when you compare these two things together and you realize that this world is just very limited, Imam Adi Ali Salam says it's a bridge. You just pass the bridge. You don't build it. And you, you realize your role in this world. This is not the place where we're, we're trying to gain the, the, the rewards for our deeds. This is not the place that we're going to be punished for our deeds, even though it will happen in this world to some extent. It will happen. But the main place of, of accountability is the hereafter. And Allah, we understand that therefore this world is a, is a world of testing, is a place 
So Allah says, which one of you has the best actions? You know, that's why something like this did not either when Sayyid Zainab alayha, came to, uh, you know, the court of Ibn Ziyad and they had that, you know, the belief of fatalism and the, Allah, the Bani Umayyads, the Bani Abbas, they promoted both anthropomorphism, tajseem, you know, God having corporeal form and also jab and fatalism. Sayyid Zainab says, whatever I saw was, you know, beauty, basically. And then, the, you know, what, what I saw was beauty. I did not see but beauty. So she is attacking that statement from say Ibn Ziyad or from the Umayyads that look what God did to, to your brother, for example, that God did this. So she's rejecting it by understanding and teaching us that these two things don't contradict each other. They're in line. We call this Tuli. So how is this both an action of God and an action of, of ours? Because God has created us. God has given us, given us the resources, the facilities. And God has given us and, and given us free will. And the only way for this test to be uh, a true test is that we are free. If Allah, every time we were to do something bad, he would hit our hand, for example. You know, what kind of test would, would that be? He would force everyone to heaven, you know, and that wouldn't be a test. He wants us to see truly as kind of like you know, you as a parent, or as a teacher, you, you put them in a situation and you observe and you're listening and watching and say, what will he do? And some of them will shine like Imam Hussein on the day of Karbala in the test that he had. And you won't see him complaining at all and saying, God, what did you do? You, you killed my family. God, look at... No, but you see, actually, he not only does he bear and has sabr, but in some of the sermons in uh, the night of Ashura, he is shocked here. He thanks God. The awliya of God, they thank God for these events, which is very hard for us to understand that because they know there is good, because they trust God. So therefore, we understand that this is an action of God because he gives us the ability and the only way for us to be tested truly is to have free will. But at the same time, we look at those verses and the verses clearly says, whatever you have done, you know, uh, you have done to yourselves. Or, you know, in ahsantum ahsantum anfusakum. If you've done good, you've done good to yourselves. This is one of the verses that has two ahsantum ahsantums in it. <laughs> if you do good, you do good to yourselves. So you, you have to remember those side of the verses that the Ahlul Bayt teach us to. That we are accountable and that Allah has given us, you know, the ability. And it's, it's in a line. They don't contradict uh, each other. I'm sure you can give a better answer than this and uh, uh, than me. But... Uh, Inshallah, if there's any questions the audience has, please you can ask Sheikh Ahmed to clarify uh, the answers. Inshallah. I love how, <laughs> how I, you're getting that the attribute of humility from Qom. Very good, Sayyid. Very good. Mustafa, Mustafa, so Mustafa, humble. It's a good topic. It's always an interesting topic that goes back and forth. Um, and you know, I feel every time I've taught this topic that people walk away understanding it but uh it's definitely one that people have to take a second and think about and reconcile in their mind and then when they do they get a better understanding of the law right and then that helps them improve that tohidi aspect of their life that we're talking about now yeah. this is a bridge into the next section of 
your talks, but I don't think we have enough time to get into them here. But you were talking about yeah. Walaya and the connection to the Ahlul Bayt salam, as being the next found, foundationable or foundationable, the next foundation um, of this Islamic lifestyle. And inshallah, next time we could discuss that and Abudiyat and, and all of that as well. But I want to thank you so much for um, taking the time to be on this podcast and have this conversation oh. with me. And Alhamdulillah, it's one of the blessings actually of Corona that that this happened because I've been so bad at keeping in touch with everyone. And then Corona happened and I can't go out and I can't see anyone. So I'm like, oh, let's let's get in touch with everyone on Skype. And why, why does it have to only be people in Australia? It could be anyone, right? And yes. through that, Alhamdulillah, we've we've reconnected with one another and inshallah we'll stay connected because I do miss you and I miss all the brothers in LA from Yasin and all the brothers that, that we know together from over there. What, what a great group of people, man. What a, what a great group of people. I, I, I thank Allah, alhamdulillah, I thank Allah for this uh, session that I had and seeing your uh, Nurani face. It's just a life. And story, uh, and seeing my friend, <laughs> and seeing uh, you for after you know such a long time, mm -hmm. and uh, I was truly blessed. Uh, I think that if you answered the questions, it would be better <laughs> because of your experience, mm -hmm. because of yourself. But just to be able to talk with you, see you, this has been a, a tawfiq. And um, inshallah, we can uh, have have more discussions like this, and um, and I do think that is a good, very positive way to look at uh, coronavirus instead of being upset and you know think of you know all the other you know the good side of things and taking advantage of what we have you know the resources we have. So alhamdulillah, you you, you think that way. Alhamdulillah, thank you, brother. Well, inshallah. I'll say khurafis to all the viewers and we could keep talking after this inshallah. What? You haven't subscribed yet? Mate, get on the ball. Subscribe to the channel.